This is the sermon podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for a worship Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11.15 a.m. This is Lord of Life. There is a place for you here. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. The first lesson comes from Isaiah, chapter 58. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head of, like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them, and to not hide yourself from your own kin, then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, If you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations, You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. Holy Wisdom. The second lesson comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words or wisdom, but with demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Yet among the mature we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak of God's wisdom, secret and hidden, 
which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would, have, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human except for the human spirit that is within? So also no one comprehends what is truly God's except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that it is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. Holy wisdom, holy word. The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under a bushel basket but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Usually, before the service, I'm able to look over the sermon and it settles into place and I'm ready to go. But this time, it seemed like no matter how long I looked at it, it just would not quite settle in there. So I'm staying right here which is probably a good thing. Because every now and then, we both maybe need the reminder that this symbol gives, that we gather around the word of God, not my word. That gives me comfort in preaching. I have to trust that it is indeed the spirit that moves these words Otherwise, I become supremely ridiculous standing up here and daring to tell you what the Word has to say. On more than one occasion, I can tell you I have thought that the best possible thing I could do would be to get up, read the gospel, and just say, think about it. But... We trust in the Spirit, and here we go. 
Last week I attended the, uh, the Synod's rostered ministers gathering up at the Nationwide Conference Center for which the theme was practical evangelism. A word that tends to make me squirm. A word that tends to make a lot of Lutherans squirm. I don't know of many Lutheran churches that have an active and vibrant evangelism committee. Lutherans have a reputation, and perhaps rightfully so, for being rather reticent in the, era, in the, era, in the area of evangelism. Call it what you will. Sharing our faith, giving testimony, telling the good news. Maybe we'd be better off if we were better at evangelism. Some would suggest that maybe this is why the Lutheran church is struggling. Because we don't get out there and share the good news. Certainly, there are others who do it better than we do. There's Jehovah's Witnesses, who are the fastest growing church in the United States. It's right there in the name, Jehovah Witnesses. But I, when I think about them, when I think about us, I'm reminded of that famous phrase about democracy, that democracy is the worst form of government except all the others. And sometimes when I think about the evangelism that I have experienced, I wonder if maybe silence would be the best option after all. I'm sure that most of us have had that experience of getting cornered by a well-meaning soul intent on finding out if we know Jesus, if we really know Jesus, or whether we have been saved. And if I say yes, they always seem just a little bit disappointed. <laughs> like they were all primed. The powder was dry, but they don't get to pull the trigger. If I say no, they're likely to give me their life story as a lengthy and exhaustive witness. And if I find it less than convincing, then I myself tend to be dismissed, like a small change donor to a large capital campaign. I'm not sure why all this evangelism stuff makes me so uncomfortable. Perhaps it's because so often it seems to reduce the whole encounter to almost like a monetary exchange. As if we were haggling at a flea market, but somehow failed to come to the deal. Perhaps it's because it feels like a one-sided transaction. They have the truth, and I don't. 
They want to give me something that I don't have. I become the passive receptor in the transaction. There seems to be no recognition that perhaps I might have something of value to give to them. Perhaps the main reason is just that I usually end up feeling devalued. Like, I'm only worth knowing as long as I remain a hot prospect. And as if I have no intrinsic value, just simply in being who I am. Of course, all this evangelical zeal grows out of Christ's pre-ascension command to his disciples to go make disciples of all nations. An uncomfortably aggressive verb. Make them believe. Make them follow me. At worst, it smacks of spiritual violence, the need to impose something on others. At best, it expresses a compassionate urgency as if the world is on fire and we need to pull as many people out as we can. Clearly, there were early Christians who felt that urgency, who needed to go out and tell as many people as they could what they had seen and heard, in comparison to which I end up feeling like a slacker. Paul circles the Mediterranean founding church after church, and I've never even left the country. I haven't even traveled that much in the country for that matter. Paul lifts his voice up in the marketplace, and I do not. Although I have seen those who do lift their voice up in the marketplace. Back when I lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, there was a guy that we would come across on most warm days down on the open-air mall that we called the leather-lunged mall squalor who with his megaphone loudly and clearly proclaimed the gospel. And yet for all of his volume, there never seemed to be anyone there with him, joining him on that corner. And I suppose there are some who would view what I am doing as really no different And if I were out there in the mall instead of here at church, perhaps I would garner no more converts than he did. If Lutherans have a reputation for being shy when it comes to evangelism, we also have a reputation for good old-fashioned Lutheran guilt put those two together and we feel guilty about not being better at evangelism. But I've begun to rethink this. I've begun to suspect that maybe part of the reason the church struggles is not because of our failure to do evangelism, but perhaps because of how we understand and try to do evangelism. We treat the reign of God as if it is something we have to give away, have in both senses of that word, have in the sense of possession, as if it's something that we have come into possession of, and now I want to give it to you. 
have also in the sense of urgency. I have to give it to you. We treat it as if we were salespeople working under commission. We treat salvation as something that rests on our shoulders, as if Jesus were the founder of a movement which now relies on us to see it through to completion. This is both a drastic underestimation of what God has done and I think an overestimation of what the church is to do. Christ did not start the work of redemption. Christ finished it. The work of the, of the church, therefore, is not to finish what Christ began. It's simply to give thanks and give witness. As St. Francis is reported to have said, we are to do this at all times and, if necessary, use words. But this is precisely where I think it becomes difficult. For how do we give witness if not with words? When people see us, when people experience us, when people stand back and observe us, do they see something different in us? Do they catch a glimpse in us of God's hard-won recreation of heaven and earth? We know what it looks like. It gets described over and over again in Scripture. The law, the prophets, the gospels all speak with a unified voice. As we heard last Sunday in the Beatitudes, this new world is a place where the mourning are comforted, where the restrained are rewarded. As we heard, as we hear in Isaiah this morning, it's a place where justice is addressed, where the hungry are fed. We hear this over and over and over again, such that each of us could recite it on this spot. I see this, but not often. Or at least, I see it obviously not often. Every now and then, I see someone who stands up where others won't, who takes on the difficult work of lifting up all those ones who are called blessed in the Beatitudes. Those who walk alongside the mentally ill. Those who walk with people going through difficult times long after their friends and family have said, I'm tired of hearing about it. But I've also found that if I'm patient and dig a little bit more, I see more. I see those quiet moments of patience and understanding. I see those obscure embraces of acceptance. That touch that says, it's all right. I still love you. 
I have seen the, the quiet simply sticking with friends and family members. In spite of all their sometimes unconscious, sometimes conscious attempts to drive us away. I have seen this. Those who take on the two-headed dragon of bureaucracy and complacency. I've seen those moments when someone says or does something, the curtain is drawn back just a little bit and I catch a glimpse of that reign of God and the warmth of that glory shines through. And it makes me think about the nature of light, that light that we are to let shine. Jesus says that we are salt and we are light. He doesn't say we should be salt or we should shine like light, but that we already are. It's not our job to light the fire or create the salt. It is our job simply to be our authentic selves as God has made us and remade us to be. Created in the image of God, we are to let our light shine. It may not shine brightly. And the harsh winds of this world may buffet it and even blow it out. We can't help that. That is God's business. But we can refuse to hide the light. We can refuse to put the light out ourselves. We can shine as best we can. And salt, that which gives flavor, which makes food palatable, now, frankly, I've never quite understood the analogy here because I've never known salt to go flat. I have never yet replaced the salt on my table because, you know, it just doesn't do it anymore. But there are times when I have felt as if my saltiness was gone. There are times when events, friends, disappointments, whatever it might mean, make me feel used up and ready to be discarded. There's no way in which salt can regain its saltiness. Well, there is one way that I know of, and that is by adding more salt. And that's when I look out at the community and I give thanks for all those times when I come in and I just do not have it. When there is nothing in me to give witness to. When I can't see the reign of God, let alone make it visible to others. And that's when others show it to me. That's when others remind me of what that looks like. And every now and then, even with words. Every now and then, I've actually heard a sermon. 
that for a moment made the reign of God clear again, and I remember why it is I'm doing this. But more often I hear it in other contexts. One of those quiet moments I was talking about. When it comes without any pretense or without any sense of exchange, when the light simply shines through us. And I find that I can shine again. I find that life takes on flavor again. And I give thanks for this strange, awkward beast that we call the church. These things may not seem like bold witness. It may not be showy or dramatic. I may not be able to get up and say, I was addicted, I fell down to the bottom of the pile, but there Jesus found me, I saw the light, I was born again, and here I am to tell you all about it. Although that can be a powerful witness. But it gives me courage to be a witness when I know that this thing is not mine to give away, it is simply mine to be part of. And my witness consists not of convincing you, but of simply not denying myself. And that becomes a form of evangelism that I think I can do. And that becomes a form of evangelism that I think the world needs. As I say, it may not be terribly showy, but I think maybe it's enough. Amen.